All right. So we're going to continue on in our study of Genesis chapter 3, and I think that probably we'll be finished with Genesis chapter 3, hopefully by the end of next time. Um, We have talked uh, quite a bit last time about the importance of Genesis chapter 3 in general as foundational to really just an accurate worldview. And and obviously that that comes into play when you consider uh, how the narrative of Genesis unfolds in that at the end of Genesis chapter 1 you have that that statement about how that God saw that everything that he had made and behold it was very good. And then you look at Genesis chapter 2 where it zeroes in on man and the creation of man and the garden and the creation of woman and the things that unfold there in Genesis chapter 2 as a a more uh, close-up focus of creation day 6. And you see there pristine beauty, you see abundant provision, you see God's perfection and His grace and His kindness uh, on full display, you see um, perfect union in marriage and complementary relationship there. Uh, Just everything is good. Everything is very good. And so when we Uh, look at that narrative and we look at what we experience on our day-to-day basis in our lives and in our relationships and we look back through the corridors of history and we look even to our own hearts and our own minds and the struggles that we have with with sin, it begs the question, what happened? And of course, Genesis chapter 3 begins to answer that question for us in very insightful and profound ways as it describes for us um, the fall of man and the curse that that comes as a result of that. So we talked about how uh, important it is for us to have an accurate worldview, a biblical worldview in particular, uh, as it relates to the fall and to sin, and how there's really some some danger in having that worldview askew in any way. It oftentimes leads to uh, when we don't have a right view of sin or even deny the the existence of of original sin or, or of the fall, that it leads to just a misdiagnosis of really what's, what's going on, a misdiagnosis and a, mis, a misappropriation of, of unacceptable, uh, un, um, ineffective remedies for, for what plagues us and what ills us. Oftentimes the emphasis is on naturalistic issues, on social issues. There's intellectual causes that are blamed, and so we need we need to deal with disease or we need to deal with social injustice through law and policy or we need to deal with intellectual limitations that cause people to fail and to stumble by educating them more. And so all these, all these misdiagnoses of the real fundamental problem leads to inadequate remedies. Uh, and we talked about that. We also talked about how this provides for us a, a, a foundation for an accurate understanding of the nature and character of God, as well as God's purpose in redemption, and how we see that God is absolute in his sovereignty. Uh, He's a creator and a ruler and a provider, but he's also a lawgiver and he's a judge. And those are attributes that we come to know of him more clearly in Genesis chapter 3. We we understand more clearly his complete holiness um, he's perfect in purity. He's perfect in truth. He's true to his word. Um, he does not fail in keeping his word. We get to know him in his wrathful hatred of sin. When you see the curse unfold, um, you see that there's, uh, there's uh, sobriety and seriousness on the heart, in the heart of God, to say the least, as it relates to sin. And, uh, and there's no equivocation there. And then we get to know 
God and his long-suffering patience with sinners. Uh, You see that in Genesis chapter 3 as well. And also, you begin to see the unfolding of his spectacular plan of redemption. So these are things that are so important for us as we, as we think about our study of Genesis chapter 3, just in terms of it building in our minds foundational principles of worldview and the character and nature and plan and purposes of God. Uh, we looked um, clo- more closely at the, at the narrative and, and we kind of broke it down into some four, sort of four key components. We looked at the strategy of the serpent, who is also Satan, as he's been identified. We looked at the seduction of the woman. We looked at the sin of Adam, and we briefly started looking at and talking about uh, the shame of all, or really the, the implications of the curse, not just on Adam and Eve, but on all humanity uh, for all time. So, so that is kind of where we left. We just kind of have touched on the, 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 the edges of that subject, and we're going to pick that up and Ernest um, next week and finish out discussing uh, the last half of Genesis chapter 3 and the curse and, and really the broader implications of the curse for us. But let's read the text quickly together. Let's just read verses 1 to 7 again of Genesis chapter 3, and we'll continue on in our study. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So there you have it in in seven very succinct verses, this transition from pristine, sinless beauty and provision, unobstructed communion with God, um, perfect complementary union in marriage to temptation, sin, guilt, shame, all there in the first few verses of Genesis chapter 3. This is the Bible's... Uh, notice, it's, it's, it's interesting to note that the Bible's first recorded sin, it's limited to only eight words in the Hebrew text. So it's, it's caps, encapsulated in seven verses, but it's limited to eight words in the Hebrew text. And the first four words contain double consonants. This is from a a commentator. I just thought this was an interesting fact and an interesting observation. It's it's the first four words contain double consonants, and they're translated, and she took of its fruit, and she ate, and she gave. Those are the four words that have double consonants in Hebrew. J.T. Walsh, a commentator, said it this way. He said, such extremely difficult pronunciation forces a merciless concentration on each word. So just drawing our attention to the fact that, that it is, you, you have to even work at just the pronunciation of this portion of the text. And he, and he, and he kind of characterizes it as merciless in the concentration that's required. Last week we headed out in, on what, what I would call a bit of an excursion, a bit of a theological excursion, uh, systematic theology to be exact. And we, we started looking briefly at the doctrine of sin. And I realize that in doing so, I'm totally out of step with 
uh, most contemporary thinking on what you should or should not do or talk about in, in church. Um, I mean, you certainly don't want to spend too much time talking about doctrine or theology. Um, you really should be focusing on you know, dialoguing about issues that are relevant, right? So doctrine and theology is not relevant, and we need to dialogue and talk and discuss about the issues that are really relevant to your lives and mine. And even a step further, you know, it's really not in vogue to talk too much or emphasize too much sin. I mean, we don't want to spend too much time talking about sin uh, or guilt or shame or anything like that. In, In fact, we should really focus our attention on things like the love and grace of God, or having a personal relationship with Jesus who, who in that relationship is able to satisfy our deepest felt needs. I mean, that's kind of the focus of contemporary evangelicalism and what you do and talk about and emphasize in teaching and small groups and even from the pulpit. Um, and yet I'm departing from that and just focusing on theology and the doctrine of sin. Uh, this will be our second week to sort of talk about this. Obviously, our church is not uh, uh, typical in that regard, but I also want to make a statement about that in that I hope that, um, that in doing this, that it serves uh, not just a, uh, a purpose of sort of intellectual stimulation around you know, biblical truth or, or theological truth, but it serves some practical uh, helps as well, and we'll talk about those as we move forward. There, there are real practical implications here for us and looking at this uh, issue of the doctrine of sin, and even um, some other things that we're going to talk about today, uh, there's practical implications for us as it relates to um, how we handle the scriptures in general. Okay, um, it's interesting when you think about this this issue of sin, and even uh, in more of a practical application standpoint, the the uh, common view of emphasizing it or talking about it too heavily, coming down too heavy on people with issues of sin and guilt and shame, as I said before. Only 5%, this is from a, a recent Barna Research Group telephone survey of Christians across the United States. It reveals some interesting facts about the state of accountability in the church. So when you think about accountability and sin and, and being accountable for your actions in the context of the local church, only 5% of people say their church does anything to hold them accountable for integrating biblical beliefs and principles into their lives. So, telephone survey of professing Christians, and only 5% would say, I'm accountable in some way for my actions, even in the context of the church that I serve in. So, the, the, the one larger principle here is that not only are we accountable for, for our actions before God, but we're accountable to one another in the life of the body of Christ, right? So we have accountability here in our understanding of doctrine and our application of the truths of Scripture and the principles of, tri- of Scripture in our interactions with one another and our day-to-day conduct and our thinking and our words and so forth. So the more we understand the truth of God's Word, the more we can fulfill that responsibility. So when we look at this absence of accountability or this absence of any focus on or any desire to focus on or talk about sin, the nature of sin, the gravity of sin, the consequences of sin, or even in being an environment in our churches where, where we're accountable for our actions um, in, in the contemporary church. The Bible presents to us an extensive vocabulary and coverage about sin and our accountability to God and to others for it. 
Bruce Milne, in his book, Know the Truth, says it this way. Scripture uses a wide variety of terms to refer to sin, which is not surprising since the dominant theme of the Bible is man's rebellion against God and God's gracious response. So sin basically is everywhere on the pages of Scripture, unfortunately. Um, the main biblical terminology for sin is, is the word sin, which means missing the mark or erring. We talked a little bit about this last week. Or another word that's often used is the, is the term iniquity, which means crookedness or perversity. It has the idea of being twisted or bent out of shape. Another term that's primarily used is transgression, which means rebellion or, to, or a trespass. There are other terms that are used uh, regularly like wicked or evil or unrighteous or ungodly, lawless, to turn aside, to be deceitful, guilty, disobedient. And then there, there's, of course, a whole litany of, of narrative actions, describing actions that are characterized as wrong and sinful all throughout Scripture. So the Bible is replete with accounts of sin, descriptions of sin, identification of sin, accountability for sin, consequence for sin, and on and on it goes. So it does us well to, to pay, pay attention to sin as an important matter for us to understand and to know how to consistently repent of. Louis Burkhoff says this, In view of the use of these words and of the way in which the Bible usually speaks of sin, there can be no doubt about its ethical character. It is not a calamity that came upon man unawares, poisoned his life, and ruined his happiness, but an evil course which man has deliberately chosen to follow and which carries untold misery with it. Fundamentally, it is not something passive, such as weakness, a fault, or an imperfection, for which we cannot be held responsible, but an active opposition to God, a positive transgression of his law, which constitutes guilt. Now, we, we, as, we, as we began to talk about this issue of sin, uh, an interesting question was raised about Adam and Eve's essential sinless nature before the fall. Very interesting point of, of discussion. And really, it, it raises in our minds what must have been going on at that time? What must have been affecting the thinking? What, what would have led Eve to be lured away into eating the forbidden fruit? I was talking about it the, uh, last week, how <clears throat> from the text you see this, what appears to be an appeal or response to an appeal to, to her appetites in three key areas, to three areas of appetite. One was physical appetite, because in verse 6 it says that she saw that it was good for food. So there's something about the, the, the physical appetite of, of eating the fruit. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call this a, an appeal to actual physical hunger, because as we know, there was plenty of other things in the garden to eat that was readily available. So it's not as though that Eve was uh, feeling hungry necessarily, or that, that she was sort of too far away from the pantry, so to speak. Um, that's not something that would be implied by, by the Scripture, and quite the opposite, actually, would be, would be, I think, a reasonable assumption to make, that there was an abundance of provision of food to eat um, all around. But it, was, it, was, it, it seems to be this, this beginning of what I would characterize as kind of a practical rationalization. You know, it's, um, I mean, it's like, it's like it's, you know, after all, it's good for food, right? It's just sort of like the beginning of, of rationalizing a decision that's being contemplated. That would be how I would 
how I would kind of understand that. Basically, if you think about how that, that kind of rationalization of something is not necessarily in and of itself the sinful act, but it's the beginning of the contemplation of a decision that, that we weigh out the implications of that decision. So if we begin to rationalize something as not particularly harmful or it doesn't seem like it's that bad or it, you know, why, why should this be a problem? You know, that's the kind of the idea here. It's good for food, so can it really be that bad? It's, it kind of diminishes the true nature and gravity of what she might be contemplating, it seems. And then there's this appeal to emotional appetite. It was a delight to the eyes. So, you know, a one possibility is, is the question that comes up is, is how could something so delightful be bad for me? Again, I'm not inside her brain at the time, but I'm just saying, if, if this isn't supposed to be instructive for us, um, and, and it's, it's referencing the fact that it was delightful to the eyes, it stands to reason that, that if we think about this in the context of how, how we get lured into sin, um, it does, it, there is something that begins to happen in our, our thinking that, that we begin to rationalize things in a, a number of different ways as not being as bad as they actually are. I mean, after all, when you think about our, our steps into sinful actions, especially if, we are very, if we're doing it very consciously and deliberately, okay, I'm talking like, I'm going to do this thing, even though I know it's not right, okay? I'm talking about those kinds of deliberate, overt kinds of steps into sin. We're certainly not contemplating consequence right in front of us all the time. We're, we're rationalizing what we're going to gain in the, in the temporal, Right? We're, we're thinking about the things that would veil the raw consequence, the harsh reality of disobedience to God. Right? That's, that's kind of how, how things play out in our thinking, I think, when we're, 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 we're moving towards sin. There was an appeal to her intellectual appetite. Um, it, it's, it's, it, she saw that it was, it was to be desired to make one wise. And this is really where that transfer of trust away from God and the authority and the clarity of his word, the sufficiency of his word seems to begin to take place. It begins to start to take place there because the implication is that, that what God brought to the table was not sufficient, that God was keeping. Remember, that was the argument of the serpent, that, that God's keeping something from you. So he planted that seed of doubt, and she began to, to move in that direction. So there's this transfer of trust away from God and his, his word and his sufficiency and toward something promised in another direction from the serpent in this case. So the essential question really is, and again, this is sort of like trying to infer from, what, from the text and really bring, bring those inferences into our own experience, right? Into our own experience of temptation and sort of the, the way that our mind can kind of get twisted up in our thinking. We just fail to think clearly about the nature and gravity and magnitude of sin and its consequence when we, when we were, are lured into temptation. But, but the question that was raised, and it, like I said, it's a very compelling question. What was Eve thinking? And to make, it, make a finer point, the fact of the matter is, is that she's in a pre-fall state, right? So while, we, while much of our temptation, or while all the temptation that we experience, is usually a direct appeal to our already sinful nature, Right? I mean, it's, we already have predilections and tendencies and, and drives and that kind of thing, and, and our, our nature is corrupted by the fall. 
and, and we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, and we're being renewed, but, but we still wrestle with the flesh. And so Eve and Adam didn't have that, that corrupted nature burden. So something different was obviously going on there. Now, there was also um, a question, or uh, there was also, I guess, uh, we were, I was comparing um, the temptation of Christ as a way to sort of illustrate how Satan's strategy is pretty common. Um, it was kind of similar in the garden as it was in the temptations of Christ. And, and it led us to sort of draw some potential comparison to the, the human nature of Christ and the pre-fallen nature of Adam and Eve. So, again, I'm, 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 I'm walking down this path because we really didn't get to talk about it. It was a little bit abrupt, and, and, um, and we really didn't get to kind of flesh that whole discussion out. But I think it's a, it's a compelling question in light of this text. And, again, I'm going to get to a point where I think it's important for us to, to kind of take away some practical components as well. So, what was Eve thinking? Well, this, this, what, what was going on here? And, and, and what was really going on in, in Christ when he was tempted? What was, what was the nature of that, that interchange with Satan? This raises a question about the, a doctrinal issue called the doctrine of impeccability. You guys heard of that? The doctrine of impeccability. So this is one of those things where you can go talk to your friends you know, over coffee and just say, hey, listen, have you thought lately about the doctrine of impeccability? Let's, can we talk about that? I mean, and really impress them with your, your theological knowledge and your knowledge of theological terms. But it really is a, 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 an area of debate and a doctrinal issue in, in systematic theology and, and discussion amongst theologians, and has been for, for ages. I mean, it's, this is one of those areas where there's been much, um, much written and much debated over the matter. Um, so here's kind of, let me give you some, some, some detail on this. Um, there's never been any real substantive dispute in Orthodox Christianity over the sinlessness of Christ. Okay, so, the, so the issue is not about was Christ sinless or not. That is inarguable amongst most, really against all Orthodox theologians past and present. Okay? And, and really the reason for that is clear is because Scripture speaks so explicitly and clearly to that issue, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 5.22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I mean, that's just a few examples of how explicit the scriptures speak to the sinlessness of Christ. So the debate does not hinge on that at all. There's, there's relatively universal agreement amongst Orthodox uh, Christian theologians historically and in, in the present. Um, there's actually very little dispute really over whether or not God can be tempted to sin. Okay, Because again... That's explicitly addressed in James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So even that is spoken of explicitly. I mean, it's not just, it's not ambiguous in terms of how the scripture deals with it. It's, it's very straightforward and, and explicit in, in, in the wording of that statement about God not, not being tempted with evil, cannot be tempted with evil. Correct. And 
Right. But you just read Hebrews 4.15. Mm-hmm. Christ, being fully man, was tempted just as we are, and yet sinned not. Correct. He couldn't be tempted just as we are if he didn't have the potential to sin. We'll talk about that. Okay? That's, 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 the, that's, that's the horn of the dilemma on one side of the argument, for sure. And we'll, we'll get to that, trust me. So, here's the thing. The disagreement, let me just kind of define the, the point of disagreement quickly. The disagreement among theologians, and, and throughout hist- presently and throughout history, centers on Christ and his incarnate human and divine form. Okay? So the question is this, as both fully man and fully God, was Christ impeccable? Or was Christ not able to sin, in other words? That's what the term impeccable means. Not able to sin. Much less even be tempted by sin, as James 1.13 would say about God. Okay? Or was he peccable? Able not to sin. That's the term. Again, over coffee, talking with your friends, that's the term. Okay? It's a strange term, I know, peccable, but it's what it is. Was he peccable? Able not to sin. Or, consequently, able to sin is the idea. So you get the distinction in terms. Again, I'm giving you some of the technical terminology around this. Impeccable, he was not able to sin. Peccable, he was able not to sin. Or the converse of that, he could have, but he didn't. Okay? that's That's the technical differentiation there. Now, again, it's very important to note that Scripture does not resolve the debate. It doesn't. It doesn't resolve it in, un, in unambiguous terms, in other words. Okay? So we're not going to leave here satisfied that it's this or that absolutely. We won't. It does, however, raise questions, and this is what's important. It raises questions about how various scriptures are interpreted and what theological issues most prominently inform each of the positions. Here's the, here's the, the ultimate point. You can have an, a, a view that Christ was, in his incarnate form, was impeccable, not able to sin. And you would be in agreement with the majority of past and present theologians. You could have a position that he was peccable, meaning that he was able to sin, but didn't. And even though it would not be a majority view, it still could be supported from Scripture, depending upon interpretive principles and theological implications, and, and, and not be, you know, a, a, a heretical position, okay? There'd just be a point of contention about where you're going to land, and I'll flesh this out a little bit. I'm kind of creating the horns of the dilemma for you to intend, intentionally either confuse or frustrate you for a few minutes, and then we'll, and then we'll get, get this kind of hashed out. And again, I'm, I'm going to welcome some, some, some commentary in just a minute, but let me kind of get some of this stuff out on the table for us to consider, and then we can kind of wrestle with it a little bit if we have time. The point is, is that the scriptures, the scriptures do not unambiguously settle this issue. Okay? Now, I found uh, an article, a, a theological journal article, that <clears throat> of the things that I read, I found it to be most helpful, most sort of succinct. Um, there's certainly tons of stuff you could read out there, um, but the one that I chose to kind of summarize things, and I feel like gave a really balanced approach to the matter, it's an article called Evangelicals, Hermeneutics, and the Impeccability Debate. 
So, you know, if you want to have some devotional material this week, you can Google that and, you know, spend some time each morning over coffee reading this journal article. Uh, it's a Master Seminary journal article from the spring of 2000 written by Michael McGee Canham. That's the gentleman's name. And so a lot of this content that I'm going to be presenting to you is kind of taken from and summarized from, from his work. So let's talk about the peccability position. What is the peccability position again? Yes, so he was able, the, the formal way they say it is he was able not to sin, or the implication, he could have sinned, but he didn't, okay? That's the peccability position. Christ could have sinned, though he did not. Now, here are some of the primary arguments for that position. The first is the full humanity of Christ, which has been mentioned here, and it's appropriate to, to raise that issue. It, If Christ in his incarnation assumed full humanity with all of its attributes, he must have had the ability to sin since by itself unfallen human nature is capable of sinning as the fall of Adam and Eve shows. Okay. The second argument is the temptability of Christ. Christ was tempted in all parts as others are, Hebrews 4.15. He endured numerous temptations throughout his life, Matthew 4, 1-11. And the ability to be tempted implies the ability to sin. That's probably the most common sort of logical approach to it, is that, is that the implication is that if he was tempted, then he must have been able to sin. Okay? And then the, the third argument that's often made for the peccability position is the free will of Christ, that Christ had, as Adam did before the fall, a, a free will that implies peccability, implies the ability to choose sin. So, uh, again, equating the, human, the humanity of Christ and the human nature of Christ and the will that that Im- implies as most like Adam before the fall, and therefore Christ and his humanity was peccable, able not to sin or also able to sin but did not. So here's a summary statement from this journal article. Peccability advocates, are you guys okay with that term? I mean, I'm going to be using it over and over again. You, you guys, I mean, it's, I think yeah, I know. It's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit uh, annoying of a term, really. Um, but, but here's what it says. This is a quote. Peccability advocates see much at stake in this debate. Preeminently, the reality of Christ's humanity, his temptation, and a truly sympathetic priesthood. Those are big deals. It's important. They assert that all of the above are compromised if Christ had no ability to sin. So good. So, so again, this is sound reasoning from the scriptures. It's not, it's not heretical. It's not excessively controversial if you're looking at it from a particular perspective and you're focusing. You notice how the sort of the, the theological priority here is on and, and sort of the reasoning is on the humanity of Christ and the identification with us as a great high priest which are important theological truths and principles, right? Okay. Now to the impeccability position. Okay? That was peccability. Now the impeccability position. Christ was unable to sin. Okay, that's, that's the impeccability position. He was unable to sin. The, the arguments for the impeccability position primarily are these. First, the deity of Christ. Since Christ as a person existed before the Incarnation... It follows that Christ's personality resides in his deity. 
since Christ is God and since God cannot sin, James 1.13, it follows that Christ could not sin either. So you see the, the shift of theological priority there to the deity of Christ, and then the implications of that are drawn out. The second uh, argument are the decrees of God. Since God had decreed the plan of redemption to be accomplished by Jesus Christ, it follows that Christ could not sin, for, he ha- for had he sinned, the plan of redemption would have failed. So again, the first argument talks about the, uh, the deity of Christ and the personhood of Christ that existed before the incarnation. This deals with the decrees of God, the, the eternal plan of God to bring about a a, uh, to, 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 to bring about salvation through his son and the redemptive purposes there that were decreed before the foundation of the earth that's also talked about in scripture. So again, arguments from scripture with a certain, certain theological assumptions informing some of the interpretive em- emphasis. Are you guys tracking with me there? Say that, say, expand that a little bit. First argument that he could sin but did not, we're talking about could he? Mm-hmm. The argument that you put forth was yes, he could, but he didn't, which is what Hebrews says. Yeah. But the other argument is he didn't because he was still God, but he left that glory in heaven when he came to earth. So No, there, it's, it, there, there's, there's an argument for it. So you're, 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 you're again, you're, I'm going to get to the end. I'm going to argue for both. I'm going to say that it's, it's a both-and argument, okay? But you're, you're adding implication to what you're saying in that you're, you're, you're defining what it meant that he left his glory in certain specific ways that may not necessarily be true. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm telling you. That's why I'm, I'm saying I'm saying this is one of those things where, depending upon what angle you're looking at this from, you can you can make a sound argument, a reasoned argument from the scriptures. But it's it's it, I'm going to end up in a both and kind of position. I'm going to agree with this writer, and you'll, I think you'll see why in just a minute. You're not going to tell us where you stand. No, I am going to tell you where I stand. I'm just going to say I mean, you're just not probably going to be happy with it. Because I'm, I, yeah, I mean, you're, you're probably going to think that I'm kind of equivocating, but I'm, I'm really not. I'm just kind of agreeing with the, the, ra- the reasoning. Are you going to be a mug wump? What is that? A mug on one side and a wump on the other? A fence sitter? Sure. Sure. I'll be very definitively on the fence, though. <laughs> um, okay. So, continuing on, so the first, the first was the deity of Christ. Again, we're talking about the arguments for impeccability. The deity of Christ and his personhood existed before the incarnation and his personality resides in his deity. The second is the decrees of God. The third is the divine attributes of Christ. Some impeccability advocates argue from the immutability of Christ, from Hebrews, Hebrews 13.8. The reasoning is that if Christ could have sinned while he was on earth... He could sin now. Since he cannot sin now, 
and he is immutable, it follows that he could not sin while on earth. Other attributes appealed to are Christ's omnipotence. Ability to sin implies weakness, and Christ had no weakness, and omniscience. So, again, this is, this is some, some advocates would argue for his divine attribute of immutability or possibly his omnipotence and that kind of thing. But obviously, an emphasis on his deity, right? All these arguments focus on either the transcendent eternal decrees of God or Christ as the incarnate Son of God, focusing on his deity, the divine nature, okay? So here's the summary statement uh, from the journal article about this particular side of the uh, debate. Predictably, impeccability advocates see opposite issues at stake in this debate, preeminently the deity of Christ and and the immutability of the decrees of God. Either of these, it would seem, would affect the, the person of Christ. So again, both, both sides are arguing from important positions, biblically and theologically. They're, 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 they're debating the issue from sound footing, in other words. So let's think about some important issues to consider, okay, on the, on the practical side of this. It's important for us to think about the significance of the silence of Scripture, In other words, even the passages that you guys have referenced and that I've quoted, they don't define with exclusive specificity what the answer to this equation is. They don't. They they speak to it from the perspective that we've already spoken to it from. But there's more that can be argued or discussed to... to, um, to make those particular strong arguments on one side or the other not so strong. Because Scripture is silent on this from, a, from, a particular, uh, from the uh, perspective of specificity. The secret things that God has chosen not to reveal to us and thus may be left unanswered is something to consider. Okay? There are some things that are past defining with consummate specificity. Okay. Another important note as we think about the significance of the silence of Scripture on this matter is that the silence of Scripture may be an indication of, of this argument forcing a question upon the Scripture that it, it doesn't answer. And, you know, we have a tendency to, to do that. I mean, we, we want to know the answer to things, right? And so sometimes we want to try to force the, the answer or the question into the Scripture, and it's not even answering that question. Okay, so that's another thing to consider here. And I'm talking about inspecificity. Another, in, another thing to consider, and that we've, I've alluded to this already, is that um, there's often the arguments that are made, they're made from theological implications that are being drawn. So when Scripture is silent, especially when Scripture is silent on a matter, usually the argument for a position on the basis of the implication, it's, it, they're arguing from the basis of the implications of the contrary position. So, the argument would go like this. If you believe that Christ was able to sin but didn't, then you are, you are basically, the implications of that is that his deity was not fully manifest in his moral character while he was incarnate, or something like that. It would be, you'd be arguing from a theological conviction, theological perspective, and really, your argument would be drawing out the implications of the, of the contrary argument and saying those are just untenable. Those are un, 
unsatisfactory to me. And the, and the converse is true. If you're saying that Christ was, was not able to sin, then the temptations of Christ were a fraud, and he's not a, he's not a high priest who is, who's been tempted in all ways that we are, and yet was without sin. I mean, there's something, there's something askew there in those clear passages of Scripture about his high priesthood and him being tempted in all ways as we were. Again, the arguments often are a, are a, a lack of, a lack of uh, the, the argument for something is really an argument against the full implications of the alternate, the opposing position. Because there's not clear, clear, clear scriptural evidence that would land you one way or the other. And then the other important note is to think about the meaning of terms. For example, the term ability. What does one mean by Christ being able or not able to sin? One could define ability in several different ways. For example, if one defines peccability in ontological terms or in essence kinds of terms, the very essence of Christ, then it would seem that Christ in his unfallen human nature was able to sin even while in his divine nature he was not since peccability is a defining attribute of preconsummate humanity. Now we're getting into some lofty terminology here. But what if one views ability from the standpoint of the decrees and the sovereign plan of God? This is one of the key arguments used in support of the impeccability position. Since Christ's saving work was ordained by God before the foundation of the world, since the Old Testament contains many prophecies, beginning with perhaps the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15, which explicitly point toward Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise of redemption, and since God works all things after the counsel of his will, would it have been possible for Christ to sin and thus thwart the whole plan of redemption which God had decreed would come through him? So again, how do you define ability here? Which is exactly what Satan hoped he would do, which is why he tempted him in the wilderness. Because he, he knew that if he could get Christ to sin, he would not be an acceptable sacrifice for God's wrath. Right, right. How do you define humanity in the argument? So there's the definition of ability, the definition of humanity. Was Christ, as true man, capable of sinning? To answer this, one must answer another question. What constitutes ideal humanity? Scripture discloses at least four different conceptions of humanity. Pre-fallen humanity, Adam and Eve. Post-fallen, unregenerate humanity. Post-fallen, regenerate humanity and glorified humanity. Those are the four conceptions of humanity in Scripture. Pre-fallen humanity was peccable, able to sin, and did. We have clear evidence. That's not debatable, right? Post-fallen, unregenerate unregenerate humanity, again, uh, not able to not sin. You understand that? I mean, like, it's just there's, it's a sin, a sin nature in full display without any redemptive work going on at all. Okay? What's that? Post-fallen, regenerate humanity. Post-fallen, regenerate humanity, which is our condition, which is the same, really, as pre-fallen humanity in the sense that we are able not to sin, but we still do, right? Glorified humanity is not able to sin. 
Okay? So which one would characterize the human nature of Christ? Do we know that for sure? Has that been explicitly defined for us? So again, I'm not... I, you have you have something? Right. So I'm going to read the summary conclusion here, and this this will summarize. I would I would kind of concur with this simply because I feel like that it's interesting and fascinating to discuss this and and to discuss different points from it. But I think the wisdom of all of us is where Scripture is silent, we can't be dogmatic, and we certainly don't want to get overly focused on trying to you know, strain out the gnats there. We just got to be really careful about that. And let me, I'll, let me just read this conclusion for you because I can hear chairs moving. That Jesus could and did retain apparently contradictory attributes, apparently contradictory attributes, is the ultimate answer to the impeccability, peccability debate. This is according to the writer of this article, okay? However, or how, excuse me, however one explains the coexistence of seemingly seemingly incompatible attributes in Christ, such as divine omniscience and human finite knowledge. Do we not see that in Scripture? In Christ, we see omniscience and self-limitation, right? So they seem to be incompatible, but we see them. The same explanation would also apply to how Christ could also be both peccable and impeccable. As God, Jesus possessed the attribute of impeccability, and he could not lay aside that attribute without laying aside his deity. As perfect man, Jesus was peccable, since that as well as, as well is a defining characteristic of true preconsummate humanity as seen in unfallen Adam. On the one hand, to deny Christ's impeccability is to not deny Christ's deity. On the other hand, to deny Jesus' peccability is to deny his full humanity and the reality of his temptations. Though the mystery still remains, to this writer, the only truly satisfying answer to the question of whether Christ ontologically, in his essence, could or could not sin, is that he was both peccable and impeccable in his incarnation, and that in his kenosis, his emptying out of himself, the exercise of his human attribute of peccability apparently limited in some sense, the exercise of his divine attribute of impeccability. Is that clear as mud now? (laughs) 
So, guys, I, I'll, when I got through kind of reading through a lot of this stuff and thinking about it, um, I, I came back to Genesis 3. And, and this is just kind of where my, my thoughts went. Um, we are often tempted to, to want to know more than we should or we need to, right? We're, we're, just like Eve was tempted to know more, quote, unquote, know more. So I think that, that this kind of argument, while it is valid and interesting and compelling and it's, it's, it's good to reason with these things from the scriptures, we also have to have, I think it also serves as a bit of a caution for us to make sure that we're not trying to press knowledge into areas where there's not been knowledge provided from scripture. So we have to kind of hold our positions in clear alignment with what is clear from Scripture and hold to them with conviction and say, this is how I see it. This is, what it's, this is how I would interpret this, and this is how I would understand that, and make sure you're being faithful and all that to, the, to you know, principles of interpretation. But be careful to not allow that to, be, to make you dogmatic in your discussions and arguments with fellow believers is the point, I think. And to also not feel compelled to press knowledge into areas that it's not there. Yes, sir. Yes, that one too. Because no matter what, whether he was this or that, God's sovereign will is the one that's going to be. That's right. That's right. That's right. Amen on that. Amen. So I appreciate you guys kind of laboring with me, but I felt like that we kind of just short-circuited that discussion last week, and I I didn't feel right about that. And unfortunately, I muted the microphone. I couldn't even go back and listen to what was I mean, it was really frustrating. I was like, I can't even go back and listen to how we talked about this. But anyway, I just wanted to kind of, you know, flesh that out a little bit more and not leave it kind of in this, you know, ambiguous place, even though it still is somewhat ambiguous as a principle from Scripture. But the, the, the great thing is that Christ did accomplish all that he was called to accomplish in dying for us, living a perfect life, dying for us, rising again, and then drawing his own to himself in salvation. Us being the beneficiaries of that. So praise God for that. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed.